what's happening in the world right now coming up on NTD News. First, our top stories. President Biden today meeting with Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky and announcing a fresh round of aid. NTD's Iris Tau is in Lithuania. FBI Director Christopher Wray facing GOP critics today while testifying before the House Judiciary Committee. Wray was asked to respond to a host of questions. Hackers from China broke into the email accounts of more than two dozen organizations, including some U.S. government agencies. Officials are calling it targeted espionage. House Republicans this week introducing a resolution to end a 9-11 era surveillance program. The program has come under heavy scrutiny recently for being used to spy on American citizens. Senate elections are coming up in November next year and Democrats hold the majority only by a thread. We take a look at which seats are most likely to flip. Welcome to NTD News Today. I'm Chris Beers. Our top news, President Biden today meeting with Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky and announcing a fresh round of aid. It comes after Zelensky decried a lack of clarity about Ukraine's NATO membership. Joining us is NTD's Iris Tau from the capital of Lithuania, where the second day of the NATO summit is ongoing. Iris, what's the latest over there? Hey, good afternoon, Chris. So very shortly, President Biden is set to take the stage right behind me at Vilnius University in Lithuania. And that's before he flies to Finland later tonight. But before that, there are a few important developments here on the second and last day of the NATO summit. The alliance, after refusing to say when and how to admit Ukraine into NATO, today unveiled a new security package aimed at bringing Ukraine closer to a NATO membership. Ukraine is now closer to NATO than ever before. And the United States, along with other G7 countries, today also unveiled a new long-term security package for Ukraine. That package of weapons and cash aims to prevent a future invasion of Ukraine. We're going to help Ukraine build a strong, capable defense across land, air, and sea. And from which will force uh, the will be a force of stability in the region and deter against any and all threats. Absolutely new security opportunities, and I thank everyone who made it possible. Thank you, dear colleagues. But Zelensky's soft language only comes after he blasted NATO leaders on Tuesday, saying that it's absurd that NATO stopped short of assuring Ukraine of a clear timeline to join NATO. But that complaint also drew backlash from some officials in allied countries. UK's, prime, UK's Defense Minister Ben Wallace said today that, quote, people want to see a bit of gratitude, adding that we are not Amazon. And U.S. Senator Rand Paul said... We've given them $100 billion and he has the audacity to be so brazen as to tell us we better speed it up. President Biden has made clear that he agreed with the NATO's language because allowing Ukraine to join NATO right now will mean that the entire NATO alliance will be pulled into a war with Russia. And of course, we're going to hear from President Biden himself in just a little bit about what the U.S. will do next on the world stage when it comes to supporting Ukraine and tackling other global challenges. Back to you. Thank you, Iris. Turkey has agreed to allow Sweden to join NATO in exchange for several wish list items. What does President Erdogan gain for Turkey, and what does Sweden's acceptance into NATO mean for the alliance? To find out, I spoke with Bart Markoy, former Deputy Assistant Secretary of International Affairs. Bart Markoy, thank you for joining us. Good to have you back on the show. Good morning. It's a pleasure to be here. 
Bart, President Biden agreed to sell F-16 fighter jets to Turkey shortly after the country agreed to allow Sweden to enter NATO. Why? Oh, this is a completely cynical move by Erdogan, by Recep Tayyip Erdogan. He's um, he's been the he's been holding up the accession of Sweden to the uh, to NATO for uh, almost a year now, over a year now, and he just sees that somebody else wants something, and he's going to get everything he can out of it. And Bart, why was Turkey blocking Sweden from joining NATO in the first place? Turkey, Erdogan wanted to get as much as he could out of this. The immediate demand, the most important demand he had was that Sweden limit the activity of the PKK, the Kurdish Workers' Party in Sweden. What he asked for was to have them expel uh, certain Turkish citizens who had fled for asylum, uh, that, who were refugees in Sweden. And Sweden said, absolutely not. This is a core value for us, uh, um, respecting human rights and respecting political asylum. We absolutely will not do it. So Erdogan said, okay, well, you have to limit their activities. And he got as much as he could on that front in, the, on the, in terms of limiting their activities. And then he said, oh, and also I want you to help me to get into the European Union. I've been asking for 50 years and the Europeans won't let me in. So you have to vote for me to enter the European Union. Oh, 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 and I want uh, F-16s. Yeah, yeah, I want F-16s. And Biden, of course, said, sure, we'll give you the F-16s. And Sweden made several accommodations. They changed their constitution, for Pete's sake, uh, to, to allow them to crack down on some, uh, some uh, political activity that amounted to terrorism. And so... Erdogan got everything he wanted and F-16s besides. And now, what does Sweden's entry into NATO mean for the alliance? It's, it's very important for both Sweden and the alliance. Sweden is one of the largest arms manufacturers in the world. They, they manufacture some of the best equipment, the best weapons, the best uh, vehicles, and... And uh, we've always had the capability to buy those things from Swedish suppliers. But now Sweden brings their fighting ability to NATO. And it's important for Sweden because Putin has been threatening every neighboring country in the context of his war with Ukraine. If we had not stood up against Putin in Ukraine, he would have had forces massing on the borders of Finland and Poland and and uh, Romania and Moldova. He would have gone into all of those countries as well. So it's a it's forming a bright line for Russian aggression against Russian aggression. And in closing here, Turkey has been pushing for EU membership as part of this deal, as as you mentioned. What would it take to actually make that happen? It would take Turkey becoming a democratic country, a truly democratic country, with a leader that respected human rights. And that's never going to happen under Erdogan's so-called leadership. He's been a mass plunderer rather than a leader. And they're never going to let Turkey in with its human rights record. That's not, it's just not going to happen. 
Bart Markoy, former Deputy Assistant Secretary of International Affairs. Thank you again for your time. Thank you. The pleasure was mine. An update on the White House cocaine incident. The U.S. Secret Service has declined to provide records related to the substance, citing possible interference with the ongoing investigation. This is in response to a Freedom of Information Act request filed by a Bloomberg business reporter. The reporter was seeking records related to the drugs found in the West Wing last Sunday. The suspicious substance was initially described as an unknown item and triggered a brief evacuation. A hazmat team and the D.C. Fire Department were later dispatched. A firefighter on a radio call said the item tested positive for cocaine. Secret Service Chief of Communications Anthony Guglielmi told the Epoch Times that the substances may have been brought in by someone who works there or had authorization to be there. The Biden family was out of town at the time the bag was found. FBI Director Christopher Wray is testifying before the House Judiciary Committee today, where House Republicans are asking a host of pointed questions. Some question why the FBI has not fired or disciplined agents who were involved in the Russian collusion allegations against former President Trump during the 2016 election. Others have asked about Ray's role in what judiciary investigators call a violation of First Amendment rights. That's in connection to the alleged censorship of Americans through social media companies. Directly report to you. Suppressed conservative-leaning free speech about topics like the laptop, the lab leak theory of COVID-19's origin, the effectiveness of masks and COVID-19 lockdowns and vaccines, speech about election integrity in the 2020 presidential election, security of voting by mail, even parody about the president himself, negative posts about the economy. The FBI made the social media platforms pull that information off the internet if it came from conservative sources. They, they did this under the guise that it was disinformation. How many illegal FISA queries have occurred under your leadership of the FBI? Well, there are reports that have come out with different numbers about uh, compliance incidents. More than a million illegal ones? Because that's what the Inspector General said. The Inspector General said that in the 3.4 million of these queries, more than a million were in error. China-based hackers breaching email accounts of U.S. government agencies. Officials say it's an apparent spying campaign aimed at acquiring sensitive information. The full scope of the hack is being investigated, but U.S. officials and Microsoft are working to assess the impact of the hack and contain the fallout. Senator Mark Warner called it a significant cybersecurity breach by Chinese intelligence. Warner heads the Senate Intelligence Committee. China has been labeled as the most advanced of U.S. adversaries in cyberspace. The FBI says Beijing has a larger hacking program than all other governments combined. The Chinese embassy in Washington, D.C. did not immediately respond to a request for comment. Google faces a potential class action lawsuit for allegedly scraping personal data from millions of users without their permission. It's from the Clarkson Law Firm, which filed a similar suit against ChatGPT maker OpenAI last month. Court documents filed in California named Google its parent company Alphabet, and its AI subsidiary DeepMind. The lawsuit points to the tech giant's privacy policy that says it can use publicly accessible information to train its AI models. The legal action comes as a new crop of such tools like Google's Bard are gaining more and more attention in the U.S. Google previously told Verge that it's transparent about using consumers' data. 
House Republicans this week advocating to abolish a broad surveillance program. They argue enough proof of government abuse has come out to end the program. Here's what lawmakers have to say. House Republicans, led by Congressman Matt Gates, introduced this resolution on Tuesday, arguing that Section 702 of the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act of 1978 should be allowed to expire. Section 702 was enacted by Congress in 2008 as a post-9-11 measure to bulk up U.S. national security. The provision allows intelligence agencies to conduct warrantless surveillance of foreigners located outside the United States. However, it's come under a lot of scrutiny lately. Last year, a report revealed that the FBI had made more than 3.3 million queries of Americans in the U.S. using Section 702. They were reportedly used on January 6 protesters, Black Lives Matter activists, and others. Tuesday's resolution states that this Congress is aware of multiple abuses of the Section 702 data collection process through release court decisions and aggregated data, which in itself is an adequate basis to sunset the program. Without congressional reauthorization, the measure will expire on New Year's Eve. However, Assistant Secretary of State Brett Holmgren previously said we need the 9-11 era law because it can protect the United States from foreign threats, from terrorists and cyber attacks, to espionage, and weapons of mass destruction. But Republicans this week say intelligence agencies should get a warrant if they see a need for surveillance. Up next, U.S. consumer prices see their smallest annual increase in more than two years. Is the economy shifting into disinflation mode? And the 2024 presidential race gets all the attention, but key 2023 state races will set the stage. What's going on in these races and what's their significance coming up on NTD News today. Welcome back. New CPI inflation data is out today. I have NTD Business's Don Ma here with me. Don, what can you tell us about the CPI report? Yeah, well, Chris, uh, inflation is definitely slowing down. Now the question is, is it slowing down fast enough for the Federal Reserve? U.S. consumer prices saw their smallest annual increase in more than two years. Uh, Year-over-year inflation is at 3.0%. Last month, it was at, or the month previously, it was at 4%. So we saw a 1% decrease in annual inflation. The month-over-month increase now was at 0.2%. What contributed to the CPI in June was the rise in gasoline prices as well as as rent. But the price of used vehicles decreased last month. I actually spoke to the senior analyst at FX Street, Joseph Trevisani, earlier about this. So, Chris, let's take a look at that. Now, Joseph, 3% annual inflation. I mean, is this a milestone? Are we still far off from the Fed's 2% target? Well, we're not very far off considering where we were just a year ago at 8 and 9%. This is a very good number. It's interesting that the Fed's original diagnosis, that this would be a transitory event that was prompted by the uh, supply shortages and the great spending bursts out of the federal government, turns out, I think, largely to be true. In my mind, I don't think that it is really the increases in the Fed's interest rate policy that has engineered this particular fall, and very dramatic fall, if you will, in inflation. I think it has to do with the inflation itself is tapering off. So you're saying this is a welcome print from the Fed's perspective? I think it's very welcome from the Fed's perspective. However, 
the Fed is absolutely not going to say so. Because the one thing the Fed doesn't want is for the market rates, the commercial rates, the credit markets, the treasury market to suddenly reverse in a very, very rapid and profound way. It doesn't want that. So it's going to keep up its rhetoric and probably one or two more increases to make sure that doesn't happen. So you mentioned that this is a dramatic drop from the peak inflation uh, last year in June. But I just want to point out something. You know, just because inflation is coming down, that doesn't mean consumers are paying less. Um, so let's say if you're paying $3.50 for a gallon of gas, uh, you're still going to be paying that even if inflation is decreasing. It just means that prices aren't going up as fast. Um, I think it's hard for prices to, back, to go back to where they were once they have risen a lot. Uh, am I right on that, Joseph? You're absolutely correct. There's almost never one of the rarest economic events is actual deflation where prices actually fall. So you're absolutely correct. The impact on consumers is improving, but it is nevertheless dramatically more expensive across the board for almost all consumer items than it was two years ago. Gas used to be $2 a gallon. It's now $3.50. And you can go on and on about that, especially about the, the things that have to be purchased, food, housing, things like that. All of those things are dramatically higher. That's not impacted by the fact that inflation is only 3% this month or last month rather than four. So I also wanted to get your thoughts uh, on the dramatic drop. So the year-over-year -year rate dropped 1% from 4 to 3%. Now, is a big contributing factor of this decrease a result of simply how high inflation was at this time last year? Because basically, if you're comparing a bigger number, uh, you're going to get a bigger difference, right? Correct. There's absolutely, when you involve, when you're doing a statistical comparison like this, there's always the effect of what you had before. And that was certainly true in the run-up, because in the run-up, we were dealing with less than 2% inflation. So you saw in a dramatic move in the rates when prices went up. You're seeing a similar thing now, because you're comparing to a year ago, which was just about the peak of inflation. All right. I think on that note, we should end it right here today. Thank you so much, Joseph. Thank you for having me. It's always a pleasure. Moving on to politics, U.S. Senate elections will be held in November 2024. 34 seats will be on ballots, including 20 held by Democrats, 3 by Independents, and 11 by Republicans. NTD's Daniel Monahan has more on which seats are most likely to flip. Eight out of 20 Democrat-held seats are in states defined as competitive. All 11 GOP seats are in states considered securely red. That math itself is giving Republicans confidence they can gain control of the chamber, now led by Democrats 51 to 49. First up is West Virginia, where Democratic Senator Joe Manchin has been challenging his own party in opposing President Joe Biden's energy policies and student loan forgiveness, but would likely be an underdog in seeking a third Senate term in a state Trump won by nearly 40 points in 2020. Manchin is rumored to be toying with the idea of a third-party presidential run, but says he won't make up his mind until December. Republican Governor Jim Justice announced he was running in April and would challenge House Freedom Caucus member Congressman Alex Mooney in the Republican primary. A three-way race could take shape in Arizona. Senator Kirsten Sinema has not announced if she will run. If Sinema chooses to run, she will likely be embroiled in what could be a competitive three-way race against strong, well-financed Democrat and Republican candidates. Those considering runs include 2022 GOP gubernatorial candidate Carrie Lake, and former Attorney General nominee Abe Hamaday. 
In Ohio, two-term Democratic incumbent Sherrod Brown was among the first Senate incumbents to declare he'd seek re-election in 2024. Three Republicans have declared their candidacies, with others likely to join the fray in a state Trump won by eight percentage points in 2020. Over in Montana, third-generation rancher Senator John Tester has managed to be elected three times as a Democrat in Deep Red, Montana. So Democrats are happy that Tester has opted to seek a fourth term. Over to Pennsylvania, where Democratic Senator Robert Casey has announced he will seek a fourth term. Pennsylvania is considered to be a purple state. As of July 3rd, only one little-known Republican candidate, Corey Widman, had filed to challenge Casey. The GOP field, however, is certain to grow with state and national Republican organizations lobbying hedge fund executive Dave McCormick to throw his hat in the ring. In another purple state, Democratic Nevada Senator Jackie Rosen has announced she will seek a second term. Rosen defeated incumbent Republican Senator Dean Heller by five percentage points in 2018. A competitive campaign against whichever Republican emerges from a still-forming GOP primary field is expected. In Michigan, Democratic Senator Debbie Stabenow is not seeking a fifth term. That leaves her seat wide open in this hotly contested purple state that will be a prime GOP target in 2024. Representative Alyssa Slotkin has declared her intent to succeed Stabenow. Republicans who have filed include Dow Chemical Executive Michael Hoover and Attorney Alexandria Taylor. In Wisconsin, Democratic Senator Tammy Baldwin is seeking a third term in a purple state where nail-biters are standard, with 2024 likely to stay true to form. No Republican opponents have yet declared their candidacy. In Texas, two-term Republican incumbent Senator Ted Cruz survived an unexpectedly competitive challenge by Beto O'Rourke in 2018. He could face another one in 2024, with Representative Colin Allred, a former NFL linebacker, announcing in May he was running for Cruz's seat. In Utah, some say Republican Senator Mitt Romney could be vulnerable because of his criticisms of former President Donald Trump. In California, five-term Democratic incumbent Senator Dianne Feinstein announced she will not run for re-election in 2024. Three Democratic congressional veterans are already signed on to succeed Feinstein. U.S. Representatives Barbara Lee, Katie Porter, and Adam Schiff. Under the state's ranked voting system, all candidates run in the same primary, meaning it is likely the last two standing in November's ballot will likely both be Democrats. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. All eyes are on the 2024 election, but numerous key state-level races will be held in 2023. To learn more about them and their significance, I spoke with Epoch Times reporter Jeff Lauterbach. Jeff Lauterbach, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Jeff, Republicans have claimed Kentucky Governor Andy Beshear didn't work with the GOP-led legislature during the COVID-19 pandemic. How will that affect his gubernatorial race? Well, it's interesting because Kentucky is considered a conservative state for the most part. Uh, obviously, you have Rand Paul and Mitch McConnell as the senators there, and it's uh, stalwarts in the House like Thomas Massey based in Kentucky. But Andy Beshear is a Democrat, yet he was ranked uh, last year one of the most popular governors in the country, even though Republicans in the House and Senate there, plus the uh, national Republicans weren't happy with his COVID response as far as mandates. But he he seems to be in pretty comfortable position in a state that you would think he wouldn't be. 
And moving on to Louisiana, multiple election rating groups have said that the race leans Republican right now. Why is that? Well, uh, the Democrat John Bell Edwards, he is termed out. And I guess Louisiana residents want to change. And the uh, Daniel Cameron, the attorney general there, he's endorsed by Trump and he is a real popular candidate. And then uh, you, you have a, a slew of other people running, but Daniel Cameron seems to be the favorite right now. And then looking at Mississippi, uh, the, the state currently leans Republican in terms of representation, but Morning Consult said that the Republican governor has a 49% approval rating. Uh, why this difference and what are his chances of winning? Well, Mississippi, I think uh, in the, the article I mentioned that the senators are Republicans and all the House members except Benny Thompson, who's a well-known Democrat, um, are Republicans. So uh, Tate Reeves, he's trying to get his second term. And nationally, uh, Mississippi is the epicenter of the abortion topic. And uh, Tate Reeves, the governor, he, a lot of Democrats, where in Kentucky, uh, Republicans were unhappy with Andy Bashir's COVID response. Democrats are unhappy in Mississippi about Tate Reeves' response. Uh, they called it pretty much a hands-off approach in COVID. So there are topics like that. And then Tate Reeves is very strong uh, against like trans transgenders and uh, women's sports and other uh, hot button topics. So it's uh, Mississippi being primarily a conservative state. Uh, I know the, the guy running against him, uh, Brandon Presley, he's a, a distant rel relative of Elvis Presley. So and Elvis being from Tupelo, Mississippi. So who knows, that might help. But uh, I think uh, it appears it's going to be a pretty tight uh, race, but Tate Reeves appears to be in the lead right now. And why are these races, including some Senate and House races across the country, uh, uh, state Senate and House races, um, why are they considered key political races this year? Well, obviously, most... Most Americans right now, because the presidential race for 2024 is heating up, and you have a lot of key Senate races, U.S. Senate races, uh, that will determine who controls the chamber in 2024. So eyes are on 2024, but these races in 2023, like Kentucky, Louisiana, Mississippi, all southern states, um, that will set the stage for what happens in 2024. Uh, abortion is a key issue. Uh, I, I touched upon New Jersey and Virginia as far as the state legislative races, abortion being a big issue there, abortion being a big, big issue in Mississippi. Um, these all set the state. 2023, uh, President Biden, he uh, still is battling low approval ratings. So Democrats are hoping to get some momentum by winning these races to offset um, President Biden's issues right now. Epoch Times reporter Jeff Lauterbach, thank you very much. Thank you. Coming up, Pennsylvania Republican state lawmakers say the governor betrayed them when he vetoed a school choice program. Now the state budget hangs in crisis. And Business Insider corrects a story that initially said more residents left Florida than New York and California in 2021. We'll have the details soon when we return.
Welcome back. Vermont residents and business owners are assessing the damage after catastrophic flooding submerged part of the state's capital. It shut down roadways leading out of the city and trapped people in their homes. Going downtown, just realizing that you had water up to here uh, was absolutely insane. And it's really unlike any other event I've ever lived through. I was able to get some of my things off of the floor, but um, a lot of it just got upended and thrown around by the water. Um, so there's a lot of loss and damage. And right now, yeah. it's really hard to take. And I think it's worse than what we were all expecting. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, really bad for all the businesses, mainly all the people that are experiencing property, property damage. I mean, I know economically, things haven't really been the greatest for a lot of people right now. And I think, unfortunately, this could be kind of a breaking point for a lot of people financially. Vermont officials called the flooding the worst since Hurricane Irene reached the New England state as a tropical storm in 2011 that caused about $750 million in damage and seven deaths in the state. This Monday and Tuesday, flash floods turned into flooded rivers and inundated streets and shops. Residents said they were shocked at how quickly the floodwaters rose. Shop owners mopped up the damage and assessed the financial costs of the flood Throughout the state, search teams have rescued 117 people from their homes and cars by boat, as officials fielded calls that even more people were trapped in their homes in remote areas. The state representative from Georgia switches from Democrat to Republican after breaking with her former party over issues like school choice and policing. Representative Misha Maynor wrote on Twitter that it was not a political decision, but a moral one. She says she represents a Democratic voting district in Atlanta. Maynard's break with the Democratic Party came earlier this year after she was the only Democrat who voted for a school choice voucher bill. The bill ultimately failed after enough Republicans voted with the rest of the House Democrats. She was also one of the three Democrats to vote in favor of a bill that restricts defunding the police. Specifically, it blocks county governing authorities from rapidly reducing funding for local police forces. Georgia Republicans welcomed Maynard's party switch. The Georgia Democratic Party calls the switch a betrayal of her constituents. The Pennsylvania budget still mired in controversy. State House and Senate members have gone home for summer break. However, Republicans are reeling from the governor's unexpected move. Democratic Governor Josh Shapiro announced he will line item veto a school choice plan. The plan was going to be part of the state budget bill that Shapiro himself proposed. Republican leaders say he negotiated the plan during private meetings with them. The vetoed plan is a $100 million school choice program. The grants would go to families learning below two, earning below 250% of the poverty line that live in areas with, where schools have low math and reading test scores. Republicans have long wanted a school choice program. Democrats and teachers unions have opposed school choice because it means less funding for public schools. Shapiro says he vetoed the item so that he could push the budget process forward and that the school choice funding plan would not gain agreement. Lawmakers might come back before summer break is over to find solutions. A natural gas pipeline under construction in West Virginia is blocked once again. A federal court sided with environmental groups despite Congress giving the project a green light. Senator Joe Manchin accuses the court of unlawful conduct. The court's order stops construction of any part of the 304-mile pipeline route while it looks at the legality of permits. The pipeline runs from the northwestern part of West Virginia into the south southern part of Virginia. 
The order includes no explanation of the rationale behind the court's decision. It remains in effect until a full ruling is made on the case. Congress previously authorized the interstate construction as part of the debt ceiling bill. Environmental groups say Congress overstepped its authority and violated the constitutional separation of powers. Construction of the pipeline began in 2018, but has been delayed by multiple legal challenges. A strange report from Business Insider said more people moved out of Florida than New York and California in 2021. What's going on? Most other sources say the opposite. Well, turns out the reporter switched the ins and outs columns of the statistics. Business Insider has issued a correction. Looking at the statistics correctly, more people actually moved to Florida than any other state. Business Insider issued a correction after backlash and deleted its tweet with the link to the story. The title for the correction is, We Got It Wrong, More People Moved Out of New York and California Than Florida in 2021. The spokesperson for Florida, Governor Ron DeSantis, thanked the publication's editor-in-chief for the correction. He said that it's rare for media outlets to give him corrections and that most just delete their stories as if they never existed. The FDA is recalling more than 21,000 electrosurgical tools, saying they pose a serious risk but the devices will remain on the market for now. They're from Johnson & Johnson's Mega 2000 and Mega Soft Reusable Patient Return Electrodes. The pads conduct an electric current through the body when used during surgery. The agency says they could cause death, although no fatalities have been reported. As for injuries, the FDA says it's received 63 reports, possibly including third-degree burns. Device makers Megadyne Medical Products says it has informed customers with letters and is investigating the issue. Sailors are returning to Utah's Great Salt Lake after a hiatus. Crews had feared their vessels might get marooned on the dry lake bed after a severe drought. NTD's Andrew Thomas has more. Finally, these sailors can enjoy Utah's Great Salt Lake once again. Last November marked a historically low water level, largely due to drought and water diversion to cities and farms. But the depth of the lake has increased by six feet since last fall. This is the boating community's big hurrah, we're back, the Great Salt Lake is open for recreation this season, and something that honestly a lot of us didn't know to expect. Veteran sailors Bob Derby and Randy Atkin are thrilled to be back. Their sailboat and hundreds of other vessels were hoisted out of the lake in recent years. But fortunately, a record level of winter snow has replenished the basin. You know, to be out here is fantastic. It just, you know, like I was saying, you hit that outer mark and you turn the motor off and it's just like, man, you just feel like everything that happened today just kind of drifts off behind you. For Derby, the races, cold beer, and banter are even more meaningful as he fights cancer. You know, you talked about coming out here and making you, you know, appreciative for what you got. You sit in a chemo ward and look at some of those folks and holy cow, you think I got nothing to whine about. All I did was lose my hair. But droughts continue to threaten the lake's water level and demand for water is increasing from booming towns across the region. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. For the first time in 70 years, the CDC is proposing new restrictions on how dogs are imported into the U.S. The proposal comes after a surge of rabies cases overseas where the virus is still endemic in more than 100 countries. 
Dogs from low-risk or rabies-free countries would be allowed to enter if the owners have documents the animals have been there for the previous six months. But canines coming from high-risk countries would be required to have a complete rabies vaccination and possibly be placed in quarantine. The new rules do not apply to cats. The CDC has opened the guidelines to public comment until September 8th. Some animal rights advocates criticized the proposal, saying it would complicate their work with dog rescue groups outside the U.S. But the CDC says the proposal regulations are critical to avoid re-emergence of rabies here in the U.S. When we come back, North Korea fires a ballistic missile as South Korean and Japanese leaders meet at NATO. Find out how South Korea's president responds. And Thailand's foreign minister confirms that he recently met with the ousted leader of Burma. The elected leader has been detained since a coup in 2021, more shortly here on NTD News Today. Thanks for staying with us. South Korean President Yoon Suk-yeol convened an emergency national security meeting in Lithuania where he's still attending the roundtable NATO summit. That's after North Korea fired a long-range ballistic missile off its east coast. Yoon called the missile launch illicit and warned Pyongyang that it would pay the price. Japan said the missile flew for more than 70 minutes, the longest flight time ever for a North Korean missile. The launch came two days after Pyongyang accused American spy planes of violating airspace in its economic zones. Yun also met with Japanese Prime Minister on the sideline of the NATO summit. They condemned the North's missile test as a serious provocation. Thailand's foreign minister told reporters today he met with Burma's foreign leader Aung San Suu Kyi. He said she was in good health. The Nobel Peace Laureate was detained following a 2021 coup against her elected government. She was sentenced for 33 years for a multitude of offenses. She denies wrongdoing. Thailand's poll body is seeking a court ruling on Prime Minister candidate Pita Limjaranrat. The court will decide whether he is qualified to hold office. The move comes a day before the parliament is due to vote on Pita's bid to be the next leader of the country. Pita won the most seats in the May general election, but he faces complaints over a shareholding issue as a lawmaker. Pita has downplayed the issue, arguing his shares in the firm ITV have since been transferred. He added the company was not an active media organization. If found in violation, Pita would face disqualification, plus up to 10 years in jail and a 20-year ban from politics. Paraguay's incoming president, Santiago Peña, vowed to stand on the side of Taiwan. Peña's visit the island about five weeks before his official inauguration. He said his country will maintain ties with Taipei during his five-year term as president. That's in spite of pressure from the local agricultural sector, which wants to sell soybeans and beef to lucrative Chinese markets. Beijing claims Taiwan as its own territory, despite never having ruled the island. Paraguay is the last South American country with formal relations with Taiwan. The island now has official diplomatic relations with only 13 countries, mostly developing nations in Central America, the Caribbean, and the Pacific. Across the strait, a stunning scene of floodwaters pouring off bridges in southwest China's Sichuan province. Torrential rains have battered the region during the week. State media said over 40,000 people have been evacuated in the, in the province. 
When we return, a chocolatier from Tuscany creates a red wine-infused chocolate bar. For her latest creation, she uses a Cabernet Franc from her home region. And a unique ice cream is proving popular at Thailand's Temple of Dawn. Treats are modeled after the floral detail of the Grand Pagoda. Details to come on NTD News today. Welcome back, everyone. A chocolatier from Tuscany has created a red wine-infused chocolate bar. For her latest creation, she teamed up with a local vineyard to use the perfect grape. NTD's Andrew Thomas has the details. This is Cecilia Tassieri Rubasi's chocolate lab. The workshop is a place for her to experiment with new ideas. Her continuous efforts led to Divino, a chocolate made with wine. But for her, the project is about more than just a sweet treat. It's part of her heritage. I decided to introduce a novelty which certainly comes from a desire to combine part of my land. I'm in Tuscany and therefore the wine, which is without doubt recognized as one of the most important products of Tuscany, with an ingredient for which I am known, coca. Rubasi searched Tuscany for the perfect wine to combine with her coca. Eventually, she chose a Cabernet Franc from Tuscany. She contacted Simone Maggioni to tell him that she had chosen his wine from his estate. He was thrilled with the result. So the visual, the touch, the smell, you smell it, is, uh, is unique. The fragrances of the Cabernet Franc with the cocoa, and then you taste it. You melt it in your mouth, you close your eyes, and it's magic. The chocolate is darker than usual because of the red wine content, and it's not cheap. One bar sells for $18. That's because quality ingredients make quality chocolate. I created this chocolate which I called Divino and which is made with a secret process which combines a bottled wine, a Cabernet Franc impurity with coca grains and chocolate. For her next project, Rabasi is researching flowers and it's another equally poetic endeavor. There are flowers, which are another important factor in our lives. Flowers are something like chocolate that follow us from when we're children, forever. We look at flowers in many different ways and we're subjected to them with smells, with sensations, in different ways throughout the years. So certainly there will be flowers. Talk about a chocolatier with imagination. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. Visitors to Thailand's famous Temple of Dawn can't wait to get their hands on two uniquely shaped ice creams. NTD's Andrew Thomas has the details on the sweet treat, which also provides a reprieve from the sweltering heat. Residents and visitors enjoy ice cream against the backdrop of Thailand's Temple of Dawn. They can choose between two flavors, butterfly pea coconut milk and Thai milk tea. The popsicles are modeled after the blue ceramic plates and floral details of the Grand Pagoda. The ice creams are called the Flower of Dawn, which aligns with the name Temple of Dawn. They are shaped like the flowers that are decorated around the temple's Grand Pagoda, which includes ceramic plates and pearl details. These are actually the DNA of the Temple of Dawn. They're a hit with locals trying to deal with the heat in Thailand's capital. I think it's good that they made this ice cream because they used the temple's logo, which is a landmark where if you come here, you must come to try the ice cream too. I liked this idea and I'm amazed by how they came up with it. They also included the distinctive flowers. 
The Flower of Dawn popsicles are also gaining popularity from tourists. Many look for some kind of break from Bangkok's sweltering heat, like 22-year-old medical student Shirin Babu from the UK. Yeah, it's really refreshing. I was boiling, so it's really tasty and cools you down really nicely. The dessert also offers a new way to think about the temple. Thailand is rich in cultural heritage, but it's not been presented or seen in a new perspective. So the ice cream became a medium that can reach everyone, and you can eat, enjoy, and feel refreshed from the heat in Thailand. I think that if we put the temple's identities onto the ice cream, people might spend more time to search for the details. Sold at $2.50 since May, the ice creams are made exclusively for the Temple of Dawn. The manufacturer said proceeds will go towards the temple for education in Buddhism and medical expenses. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. Check out this stunning new image NASA released to celebrate the James Webb Space Telescope's first anniversary. The image shows the nearest star-forming region to Earth located at 390 light-years away. It's called the Rho-Ophiuchi Cloud Complex. The complex contains 50 stars similar in mass to our Sun. That means these future planetary systems may resemble what our own solar system looked like in the very beginning. The James Webb Telescope is the most powerful telescope ever sent to space. It launched on December 25, 2021, and NASA shared its first set of images one year ago today. Thank you for tuning in today. I'm Chris Beers.